Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Okay. Hi, Katie. Hi, Erica. Welcome to Book Talk, your weekly podcast book club. This is a special episode all about Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And we're pretty sure the whole episode is going to be with spoilers. So if you haven't read this book, we both highly recommend it. Save this episode. Come back when you have read the book. Otherwise, Katie is going to summarize what happened in this book. This book follows Sam and Sadie, who are two friends who are often in love but never lovers, over their 30 years of friendship, of being business owners, creative partners, and enemies. Sam and Sadie first meet when they are pretty young and Sam is in the hospital. Sadie is there while her sister is also being hospitalized. They lose contact and then years later they run into each other in a train station and Sadie gives Sam a game she's made. After Sam visits her on and off for a couple weeks, they decide to create a video game together and they meet Marks who loans them his apartment for the summer to help make their game and also is going to be a producer and hopefully help make their dreams of becoming video game producers come true. Over the years, those dreams do come true. They're rich, successful, and they're still making games, but they're also still Sam and Sadie. So like I said, this novel spans 25 years. There's lots of ups and downs, games that are huge successes, games that fail, conversations that were never had, Sam dealing with a disability, Sadie dealing with her brilliant and always present ex-lover, and in a heartbreaking end of scene, after Sadie and Marks fall in love, Marks is murdered in the offices. We find out Sadie is pregnant with his child. She eventually moves to Boston. Her and Sam lose touch, but they reconnect again at the very end with him, of course, asking her to make another game. You read this book more recently than I did. Um, why don't we start with our overall feelings about the book and then we can talk about specific themes. I wrote my thoughts on right after I read it because I didn't want to forget. And I feel like sometimes when weeks go by, I forget how impactful a book was. But I thought this book was beautiful and impactful and emotional. I feel like it constantly reminded me that life is really short, but it's also really long. And I thought it felt pretty hopeful about friendship and forgiveness and finding your way back to people. Um, I thought that it was really intimate. And even though they cover a lot of topics, I feel like we are covering love, family, friends, gun violence, women in video games. The center really is Sam and Sadie through the whole book. And I felt close to them the whole time. Like You can't really pick sides between the two of them. You just have to love them because they're both human and flawed and I also the whole time was just thinking like I don't like video games I've never really played video games but I still loved this story and the stories they were able to tell through making them and also I kind of want to try to play video games now oh wow what a twist to come at the end <laughs> had to switch it up a little there but I feel like it was cool to think about all of the thought and all of like the emotion that goes into thinking about the journeys these characters and these games are taking on and how much of somebody's life is put into that form of art which made me want to like play a non-violent video game there are lots of like they call them like cozy games that you would like I think yeah I think that sounds amazing like some of the games they created like I really want to play the one where Sam is the mayor Maple Town or whatever I really want to play yeah. that one very Sims-esque, but in a very sweet town. Yeah, it's like Sims, but Gilmore Girls. I feel like that is, I'm the key demographic. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I loved it. Five out of five. I feel like I was immersed in this story the whole time, and I loved getting to know Sam and Sadie. 
I also really liked this book, although I read it longer ago, so it's hard to remember exactly why. I think the biggest draw for me was a book about two people who are in like a deep creative partnership who are not, as we've said many times at this point, not lovers, yet have a deep, more intimate than just friends um, relationship with one another and how that evolves over time and sort of the commitment and maintenance that it takes to have two imperfect people in each other's lives for so long and through so many different life stages and experiences. I also like that at some points you're really pro Sadie and then other points you're really pro Sam and then other points you're like, they're both horrible. And I actually think I just like Marks. <laughs> oh my God, Marks, the true gem of this whole story. I mean, I loved him the whole time. <laughs> he was so sweet. But I like that they are both flawed characters. They're also both fully human. And I really admire how much plot and character development went into this book. I think when we think about plot, usually we're thinking about like Colleen Hoover or Taylor Jenkins Reid, where you have these like, especially with TJR books, you have this like, like we're going on an anthropological journey of decades of this group. And each person, for example, like in the band feels like it's they're a fully formed human and a fully formed character that you're getting to know. I feel like the book has that, but even more because you really love the characters and you want what's best for them and you're devastated when things don't go well. I think I loved that most about Marx's character because through it all, he sees Sam and Sadie like truly at their worst. He sees them and he saves them multiple times. He's always acting though out of love for both of them and even when he's annoyed with them he still loves them even when he's like you're being insane he still does things that make sure that they're okay their life is okay that they're seen and so I think that Marx is a little bit like the reader in that sense but I agree there are not there are not that many stories told about how intimate and deep you can have you know as far as how many intimate and deep friendships you can have and how you still have to maintain that and work at that and go through heartbreak with that. And it's not talked about as much as romantic relationships, I think, are in mainstream media. Do you, why do you think that that is? We just have more formal progressions and boundaries around romantic relationships. Like, oh, it's going to end in marriage. And that's a sign that it's like a successful relationship that's moved through the stages towards this commitment. And... Or it's a marriage that is falling apart and then it has a clear like demarcation of when we were together and when we aren't. And that's like makes sense with a plot. Whereas this relationship, like creative, intimate partnerships and even just friendships, don't necessarily have a start and a stop. They don't have a natural progression. That's part of why they're so difficult to navigate. So they also don't serve well for a book structure. It reminds me of Sally Rooney's recent book, Beautiful World, Where Are You?, where we do have a friendship at the center of it, but at the same time, both of those friendships are going through romantic relationships. So it's like that still isn't even the center here. And we do have a little bit of a love story, but even that sort of takes a very clear backseat to the relationship of Sam and Sadie. I wonder, though, if this works in that sense, because I don't, in my opinion, I don't know that Sam knew himself to know that maybe he did love Sadie more than a friend and maybe he couldn't admit that. Maybe neither of them could admit that. I think that gets back to the same trope. Like, can you be friends 
with the, you know, with somebody who you could also potentially be attracted to, who's the kind of person who you're attracted to? Like, can you truly just be friends with them? Because when Sadie eventually confesses that her and Marks are together, Sam is devastated and he's, he's confused because he's like, well, what we have at first he's defensive. What we have is, you know, more intimate than that. What we have is beyond romance. It's, it's creative partnership. It's harder. It's better. But I think at times Sam realizes that maybe he does love Sadie more than that as well and just could never say that and kind of took how she was in his life for granted a little bit, but also never really wanted to sleep with her. So what did you think about that? Yeah, it's clear Sam is like asexual, maybe aromantic. There's like something going on deeper with Sam is my guess. There's at least like a nod to that possibility. And that would explain why he is like in love. I mean, they are in love with each other in just a very specific type of way. It just isn't a romantic experience or it could be romantic, but they've spent the majority of their time working together. So they've sort of like pushed that stuff to the side. And I can understand why from Sadie's perspective, like you're my work husband. I don't think of you in a romantic way because we're constantly talking about how the waves should look and the clouds and, you know, that they're always just like focused on work. But Sadie also says at one point too, when she sees the couple, I can't remember their name. It's Anthony and someone else that are the two boys. They're in love. They kind of pick them up in there in college and let them make a game for them. When she sees them together and they go to work together and they go home together. And she's like that intimacy. It's like Anthony reaching over and just carrying his books for him without even being asked is something that she's kind of like, would it have been different with Sam and I? Could it have ever been that? Would it have been different if I we had tried it, if we could have been lovers? I don't know. Maybe that's some of the discord they have, even though I think the majority of Sam and Sadie's um, issues, like most of them in the human world, are their inability to communicate. <laughs> I don't think a relationship between them would have been successful. I think they tend to bring out a very specific dynamic in each other. And that's not one that I think is romantic or separate from work. So I don't think it would work. And I'm glad they never went there. Honestly, I'm glad there was never even like a kiss. Like, I just feel like oh, it's totally. like better that we're seeing this relationship in this specific way. I totally agree. I think that makes the friendship even more powerful, but I think it was realistic that they both have this kind of moment of being like, well, what if, and then being like, no, never, never could have been. Cause that also seems a little bit more realistic to me to how that sometimes goes. I do want to say before I forget that this book deals with a lot of triggering things. And I think before I would recommend this to like everyone I know, I would check the trigger warnings. Cause there's a lot that happens in this book and it like it happens like Gabrielle will just tell you like exactly what there's no like oh and then off in the distance there's this instance of violence it's like nope you're gonna read about it so I would just keep that in mind I'm assuming you've already read it if you're listening but if you're gonna recommend it to someone else maybe they should check the trigger warnings because this was intense she doesn't shy away from anything no like I said earlier I feel like she covers like abusive relationships gun violence you know, Sam, there's a lot that happens in this book. I do feel like it was done in a more realistic and not as in your face way as something like a Colleen Hoover book where I feel like it's just like, you know, excessive trauma. Like I think the trauma that Gabrielle does is usually serving a purpose, but definitely still check the trigger warnings. But I just wanted to say that comparison too. Okay. But the main theme of this book that you talked about is video games. So I am also not a gamer. I 
almost enjoyed this book more coming at it from a context I hadn't really thought about because there is so much that goes into building a world of even a pretty simplistic game. And it made me really want to take that class that uh, Sadie takes, I think at MIT, that like video game world building mm-hmm. class. It's just like that is such a fun idea and exercise. Yeah, I loved video games being kind of the central point of it. I thought it was a really the kind of alternate realities, the world building part of it. There's a couple things I liked about it. I loved how in depth they were thinking about every single part of what the gamer would be experiencing. So what does the water make you feel and what is the water symbolizing and what is it rushing versus waving? Like how does that instill some sort of longing or next step for the character? Like there's so much that goes into every single part of it. And I love that they designed what they wanted the game to feel like. And then we're like, okay, now how do we build that? And I think when they were starting to build video games, it was really revolutionary. It was really at the beginning of being able to create what they were envisioning. But I think it also, like most places where you can build a world, like when people create movies or write books, it allows you to kind of have conversations or confront things that you might not otherwise be able to do in your regular day-to-day life or have conversations about things you might not be able to have, which is like, I think I've said before in this podcast, why I love reading books, because it gives you a third person perspective to discuss things. So if you have this deep book about something you're not sure how to bring up and you read it with somebody or talk about it with somebody, like opens the doors to those deeper conversations, which I think happens to them in the beginning, but it really happens for Sam and Sadie in the end when they're building pioneers and they're dealing with the grief of Marx and the grief of you know, life in general and how hard it's been in there. Sadie's in a deep depression. It's a way for them to communicate without having to actually communicate. Yeah, Sadie was drawn to this from the very beginning. The first game that she makes about this like acceptance of commands and how like accepting the status quo and not questioning things can lead you into this like fascism routine. And even just her, like from the very beginning, I feel like Sadie was like games, should have a purpose they should have a point there should be a message like there should be something deeper here and that's similar also to what I think you and I like about books is like there's something more that you can get from just a plot like the plot is the plot the characters are there to go through the plot but put them together and they can be something much bigger they can teach you about yourself they can help you learn they can help you grow they can change your perspective and that's also what Sam builds for Sadie when he builds the pioneers game which is such a funny digression in the book. I remember when I was talking you through, as I was reading it, my thoughts about the book. And I was like, the book's really straightforward. It's like not very metaphorical. It's kind of like very, you know, cut and dry. And then you get to the pioneer section of the book and you're like, where are we? What is going on? Like, where is this world? And you're like thrown into the middle of this game, which you learn later, Sam has built specifically for Sadie as a way for them to connect and to talk to each other and to like escape into almost. And it's a beautiful example of how you can try and see each other in a different way. And also how well he knows her to sort of build her this world as a present. Let's talk about Sadie then and the kind of her love story and her character's plot line. She ends being fully in love with Marx and having his child. But before that, the first half of the book is really focused on her relationship with Dove. What did you think about that storyline and that relationship for Sadie? 
professor-student relationships are always going to be a big no, 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 no in my book. Uh, I think there is a little bit of, it seems like consensual BDSM or kink between them. And then there's a lot of non-consensual kink play between them and power dynamics that are very real and not fun and cheeky and are very creepy. At the same time, there's things that they like about each other and need from each other. And in that way, I feel like the drinking game of this episode is like, how many times can we say realistic? Um, But it is like a realistic relationship because usually when there are those power dynamics, the person in the low power position in this example, Sadie, she's in love with him because he's a genius. He's older than her. He's established. He's got all the things that she doesn't have. He's even got a wife. Like he's just (laughs) so far above where she is that she is obsessed with him. And it makes sense if you've been the younger person in a relationship and a significant age gap, or you've been the low power person because of your status, like you're just like, oh my God, you're amazing. I, when you look at me, it's like, you're shining your light on me. How special am I? And it makes sense why she gets caught up in his web. But that being said, I don't like him at all. Yeah, I think that is also what you said the whole time. But I agree. I think their relationship, like we've said, is realistic of any kind of those power dynamics. I think that in academia specifically, those lines are very, very clear. And they're there for a reason, like, you know, professor and student lines. But this power dynamic is something I think happens, obviously, all over. And you just don't really understand how that is affecting the relationship and what they will let slide. And I just hate this trope of this guy who is brilliant right but he's also an asshole and he gets like a pass constantly from everyone around him for being the way that he is and for treating people the way that he does because he's brilliant and I just it drives me crazy I'm like can we just this man does not deserve all the accolades that you're giving him and it doesn't give him free reign to be a jerk in class about kind of people's work and he is really dismissive and puts people down when they're presenting games to him I think I don't know. I wanted to know kind of what you thought about that being in academia or people are presenting their work and their life's thoughts to someone who is seen as brilliant and that person either is helpful or is really dismissive and that kind of just makes them seem even more elusive to get the feedback. What do you kind of think about that trope being in academia? I mean, the way you're describing him also sounds a lot like Sam. I think their dynamic is very similar, which is like the gifted man baby who can sort of get away with whatever they want because they the world sees them as incredibly competent this is definitely a man male privilege thing that like we let male geniuses get away with anything almost anything because well they're so brilliant I mean look at Elon Musk now the CEO of Twitter who is just like he's just been given this gift of oh they're a genius And then now they can do whatever they want. I mean, there's so many examples of this in academia, I'm very sad to say, because your currency is your brain power, basically, and your creative output. And that will let you get away with a lot. And we see in the book, too, where this is heaped upon Dove and Sam and not given to Sadie, who you know, throughout the book, Marx and Sam are like, Sadie is the creative partner. She's also just as important in this. She's also the creator, but she doesn't actually get any of that recognition because she's a woman. I agree with that. I think she is that that praise is never given to her in the same way. I also 
wonder, you know, she hears that praise a couple of times for Sam and for Marks, and then she kind of chooses not to, they question it for her, but I think in a lot of ways she chooses not to question it. She chooses to like hunker down and not go on tour and not kind of take up that space, which she's probably also socialized to do, right? To not force that down people's throats, that she is smart and capable, and so she kind of is in the background, which happens a lot. Yeah. Sadly, very relatable. I had a tweet about this that was um i've never been called a genius but lots of people think i'm nice <laughs> that is the oh jesus <laughs> that's too close to home <laughs> people like me though i swear i'm smart oh my god <laughs> yikes it's, it's sad it's sad that's all i have to say about that fuck dove honestly i don't care about a stupid chip Okay, so Sadie's involved with Dove. She's also involved with Marks. So let's talk about Marks for a minute. What made Marks so special? Why did you love Marks? And kind of in many ways, he's the tragic figure in this book. Why did he not make it? Why is he the one character that we lose? I think part of why I loved Marks so much is he sees people for the best versions of themselves almost constantly. He sees this good in people, even when they can't see it in themselves, even when they're not being good. And he's been through a lot as well, but he just seems so solid. And he's one of those people, I think in general that don't get enough credit in the world, but basically who are just making, making it happen. Like he in the background is giving Sam and Sadie everything that they need, every freedom that they need emotionally and physically he's making sure that all their needs are met so they can do what they want to do and he is happy to be the one really just making that happen I think at the end of the day though he's the one to leave because he is kind of that perfect character that you fall in love with it's no one you know you don't not like Marks throughout this book at times you don't like Sam at times you don't like Sadie but Marks is kind of untouched by that so when he leaves we're still left with Sam and Sadie who have to figure out how to exist together and how to find who they are independent of who they are with marks and it's almost that's really where marks's end comes from is that he thinks oh i can talk these guys down i can save the day i can save the receptionist who's sitting at the front desk with these kind of crazy people or whatever these boys these young boys um and with guns and he can't and he can't contain the situation and he can't like the good won't prevail in that situation and yeah it's it's really sad that he that's how he ends um yeah poor marks i don't know he does i agree that his most redeeming quality and the reason that you love him so much is he does see the best in people, but he also sees the best in situations and how things can be worked out. Um, and that's why he makes such a good producer, CEO, COO, whatever his like organizational function is. It's like I can pull the best things out of people around me. And in some ways, that's an even more valuable skill than what Sam and Sadie have, which is this just like unparalleled creative genius. He's like, I know how to take that and turn it into something. I can like bring all these people together around this shared idea and bring it to market and make sure we hit the deadline and make sure we're talking to the right people. That's almost more valuable because getting creativity into a product is not as easy as just being creative. 
in the world of their company, I think one thing he really does, not only to see the best in people and in situations, but to make people feel valuable. So to bring them around an idea or bring them into a company and make them feel important and also see the potential in people. After Marx is gone, they release a video game and someone's like, okay, well, is it the party time now? And that part is also so important because celebrating your accomplishments makes people feel valued, makes them feel connected, makes them want to continue doing this work. And Sam's like, wait, what? What do you mean? Like, oh, Marx would have done that. Marx would have got the champagne. He would have already thought through all of this. And those things, that's what keeps a company together. That's what keeps people working together is those moments as well. It's not just the creative genius. You need Marx's part also. I thought the scene where he, where Marx dies, so it's two boys who break in, right? And they're looking for Sam, but they find Marx. And it's it's just heartbreaking. You're heartbroken for Marx, heartbroken for the receptionist, for the kids, for everyone who's there that day, for Sam, for Sadie. It is such a scary scene. And I think the build up to that was done so well because you first hear about it from Sam and Sadie's point of view. And they're getting the calls and they're, you know, they don't know why Marx is continually calling them or what's happening. And they're just kind of going about their day. And when you see it from his point of view, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. This does not end well. It doesn't. Uh, I know. I just wanted to say how heartbroken I was in that scene. One other theme that's throughout this whole book is Sam's disability. Sadie and Sam meet when Sam is originally hospitalized, having his foot rebuilt after the really bad car accident. And then they he has to deal with it throughout the book. They end up honestly moving to California so that Sam could have the surgery and the recovery time that he needed without the harsh winters where they were at. What did you think of the portrayal of Sam's disability of how it affected and was a character throughout him and Sadie's relationship? I don't know if I'm the right person to evaluate whether that's a fair representation or whether it's a useful one. I do think, you know, what we have in this book is a lot of diversity in terms of the types of characters that are featured, their race and ethnicity, how they're all like have these multiple identities that overlap and that, you know, kind of come together or come apart and him dealing with the car accident and his, you know, issue with his foot. It's part of what makes him so complicated. It's part of what makes him so stubborn and also sort of what drives him to accomplish so much. I did like that we talk about in the book what comes after the amputation and how much pain he's still in and like the phantom foot issues. I've heard about this before, but I feel like that was also like everybody just thinks, oh, he just needs to go get it done. And he's sort of putting it off. Um almost maybe anticipating how difficult it's going to be. It's not just going to get rid of the issue, which is what Sadie and Marks were thinking. Like, just go to the doctor, just deal with it, because then it's all going to be better. And it's not. It's a, it's a lifetime challenge that he has and that he will have for the rest of his life. Yeah, I think Sadie and Marks eventually, this foot becomes a part of just their day-to-day. It's just something that they do. They just think about how Sam's going to walk in this place. They just know this is a part of Sam, which is good, right? It's this kind of like, this is just a part of what we have to think through. But it also kind of plays down the seriousness of it, right? So they're like, all we need is the amputation and everything is fine. And it kind of mm-hmm. becomes this one-track mind, of it, which you're right. It doesn't end up, nor is it ever, truly that easy. I think also because Sam downplays it a lot and because they all see this amputation as being kind of the end all be all, then 
after he gets it done, he's really struggling. He's struggling with being able to drive and the phantom foot situations. Also, that leads to a lot of anxiety about leaving, but he isn't able, per usual, to communicate that to Sadie or Marks, and they aren't asking those questions because they've become, I think, pretty comfortable with living with Sam while Sam is dealing with a lot of pain or with this foot. And so they're like, well, he's just being Sam then. And they don't give him maybe the grace that they should during that time. And they don't know because Sam isn't telling them. So it's kind of like a catch-22, how much are they supposed to involve themselves in Sam's recovery when he's not letting them know how bad it is. And from Sadie's point of view, he's just not showing up. This reminds me so much of my little sister who was hospitalized a lot when we were growing up. Um, She had ulcerative colitis and she did a similar thing, which is like at a certain point, hiding how much pain she was in to avoid going back to the hospital, to avoid being put on new medication, to avoid being a bother to people in her life. And she would internalize this pain for until she basically couldn't stand it anymore. Um, And I do really appreciate the author showcasing that, that like there are many kids who are now adults who have grown up being an issue, a medical issue, a cause of medical debt, whose pain had taken over a lot of what should be like a a beautiful, fun, creative time in your life. You're being a child. And there are scars from that that last, you know, that you don't want to be a bother. You don't want people to talk about it. You don't want people to think about it. You know, I can only imagine missing school for months and then having to come back and explain to everybody where you were and what happened. And, you know, especially for my sister to have something that's like so stigmatized and that people would think is gross to be like, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to be a normal kid. I just want to be a normal person. And so if I don't talk about the pain I'm feeling, then you don't see me as someone who's less than. So in that way, it it makes a lot of sense why Sam is the way he is and why he won't just tell them what he's dealing with. This just also reminds me now of how Sam and Sadie met. So they meet when Sam's in the hospital and Sadie starts hanging out with him. She meets him kind of randomly one day. And then she ends up using hanging out with Sam, which is something that she truly enjoys to get community service hours for her bar mitzvah. What did you think about that whole storyline and that first kind of really big and potentially fatal flaw in her and Sam's relationship? I don't know. I thought it was kind of funny. It's very like little kid (laughs) vibes to be like, I don't want to deal with this. And I also want an excuse to hang out with my friend. So I'm just going to keep racking up like an insane amount of uh, volunteer hours. Um, But I do like the piece of advice that I think it's Sadie's grandma gives her which is that life is full of inescapable moral compromises. We should do what we can to avoid the easy ones. I was like, man, put that on a mug. I need that everywhere around my house because what good advice? Like there are many moral compromises we have to make. You should try and avoid the easy ones, like lying to your friend about this, these other incentives you have of hanging out with them. Also, it's just such a teenage moment, too, because you're like, this really could have been avoided if you were like, hey, I love playing video games and hanging out and talking to you. Uh, I also do this community service thing. I don't really have time to do both. How do you feel about me just like lying to those people and writing it down as it's community service? He probably have been like, yeah, sweet. And this could have all been avoided. But instead, the level of drama around this is earth shattering for these teenagers. 
Sam and Sadie's relationship has many distinct phases. That's just the first phase of their relationship. And one quote about how relationships evolve in the book that I really loved is, um, I think, by Marx's ex. She says, the way to turn an ex-lover into a friend is to never stop loving them, to know that when one phase of a relationship ends, it can transform into something else. It is to acknowledge that love is both a constant and a variable at the same time. And in many ways, that's the plot that we're following is the evolution of Sam and Sadie's relationship through all of these different phases. And as it evolves from two kids who like to play a game together to two kids who make a game together to two kids who make a game producing company together to people who are not speaking to one another, you know, and then to people who meet again inside of a game. Like how many amazing phases can they go through? Yet at each time they have to commit to letting their relationship transform into something else. And that is the end of the book too, which is this olive branch of, should we do this one more time? Can we move into a new phase? And will we? And that's sort of the question that we're left with. I love how they seem just constantly connected. Like they're always just drawn back to each other in some way. When at the very end, when Sam's like, should we try it again? Should we maybe see if we can make a game? And she's like, yeah, don't you think that's a bad idea at this point? Like, obviously referencing all of the rough moments and horrible fights they've had. And he's like, maybe, but also maybe it'll be fun. And you're like, all right, she's back. They're going to do it again. <laughs> and I loved that, the ups and downs and how they're still always and evol- like always connected, but also always evolving together. How do you think it's going to end for the two of them? Or what do you think kind of this next phase will look like? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not committed to the idea that they do end up making another game together. I think they're always going to wonder what else they could do. I mean, this is a, they're creative people. I think of them as more than just video game designers. They're always going to be compelled to make things, to make art. They know they make really good art together. So they're, I think they're always going to want to make art together. I don't know if they will or if it's healthy, but it's definitely the undercurrent of their entire dynamic. It is very game-like, and I think that's how Sam and Sadie view the world and view relationships, which is like, we can just reboot it, or there are many possibilities of the way this could go, and we this is just run, one run of the simulation or the game. Um, and, you know, the book is pretty strictly realistic, but there are a couple of interesting tidbits of maybe magical realism or some kind of coincidences. So you know, how is the actual reality of their lives somewhat game-like? Do you think that has any deeper meaning? One thing I was thinking about with this kind of magical realism or coincidence part of it is the Annalise in this book. So Sam's mom is named Annalise. They live in New York and another woman named Annalise jumps off of a building and commits suicide right in front of them. And it obviously scares both of them, but it also scares his mom into being like, that person has my name. That person is the same ethnicity of me. That could have been me. And it scares her into kind of making a new life or picking another possibility. And then when he meets Marx, Marx finds out that his, well, he knows his mom's name is also Annalie and that Sam's mom is Annalie. And he sees this coincidence as something that brings them together. So I think that even in little small ways throughout the book, Gabrielle talks about how, you know, life is short and it is limited. And Sam's mom only had a couple of options available to her, but also she had all of the options available to her. And there are so many different things that we can experience or do in life. So I thought it was 
video games and these kind of moments of quote-unquote coincidence throughout the book are really the bigger questions that Sam and Sadie are kind of reckoning with. Yeah, it's funny. One thing you said earlier is that life is short, but it's also really long. That kind of reminds me of there's many ways in which life is like a game, which is ultimately it's a series of choices. It's all about picking out patterns. It's all about, you know, path A or path B. You have to pick one based on what you have, you know. Um, I think there's like one point where Sam makes a reference that like, if only I had this one thing in my like arsenal, it's like a video game thing. Like you have all these tools. Like if only I had the one tool that would unlock Sadie and like give her what she needed in this moment. Um, so in many ways, life is like a game, but it's a finite game and you only have like one run of it, essentially, even though it feels like it goes on forever. It feels like it's an endless series of choices. Ultimately, it is limited and you're always bound by the choices that you made, you know, this time around. What a good book. I just I, I want to read it again already. It is one of those books I wish I could read again for the first time which rarely happens to me, but I haven't stopped thinking about it since I read it. I just left it with such like a cozy feeling and also just like a, you know, humans are messy and we hurt each other and we mess up all the time. And it's, there's so many options for redemption, for forgiveness, for finding joy again. And I just feel like as messy as this book was and as much heartbreak as there was in it, there was still like this hope at the end. There's always tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And that is our burden and our blessing. Talk, talk. I finished Ill Will. Did you? Oh my God, that wild book with the guy who's like. Yes. Okay. Yes. And? Okay, it's pronounced, his name is pronounced Dan Schoen. I've been calling him Dan Cohn. It's Schoen, C H A O N. Ill Will, I genuinely had like a jaw drop, like, oh my God moment. It all does come together in the end. And it's very obvious, almost in hindsight, what was going on. But of course, you can't see that because the main character can't see that because he's genuinely going crazy. It was a very dark but creative book. I don't know if I would wholeheartedly recommend it. I think it was a nice book to read around October. It's kind of spooky and scary and psychological. And it reminded me a lot. I just saw Tar, the movie. It kind of reminds me of Tar in that it's like there's something about it that's like very unsettling. And if that's the kind of book that you like to read where there's like unsettling undertones and you're trying to figure out what is going to happen, this is a book that you would like. That's a you vibe for sure. Yeah. Also highly recommend the movie Tar. Oh my God. It was so good. Uh, that's my list and I'll probably hate it. Oh my God. There's something so funny. Today I was at a bookstore, one of my favorite in besides Bookloft in Columbus called Prologue, because the like every 10 books through the whole store, the staff members write what they think about it on these cards. And it's not just like in a staff pick section. It's like every 10 books throughout the whole store. I just love it. But I was talking to Jen about it today and I was like, oh my God, this is that book I read about cannibalism. And like three people looked at me and I was like, it's not that bad. <laughs> just dying remembering this it was tender as the flesh and this one lady was like okay what do you mean by not that bad and I'm just like standing in the middle of this bookstore talking to these like five people and I was like 
it has a lot of good meaning that can start a good conversation, but you got to get over the gore, maybe not eat meat for a week, and you got to just get through the parts. And she bought it. And I just thought you would be so happy to hear that. I'm happy. I'm also scared for this person. I am also scared for her. I'm so glad she doesn't know my name to come find me and be like, this is terrifying, <laughs> you freak. Wow. I can't believe you came around. What a throwback to a Truly. special episode that we did. <laughs> Did you read anything else you want to talk about? I just started reading Jeanette McCurdy's memoir called I'm Glad My Mom Died. Everyone in my life is reading that now. Literally, you're the fourth friend that is reading that. I really liked her episode on Armchair Expert. I can put the link in the show notes. We'll see how the book is. I feel like that podcast episode kind of covered the majority of it, but I don't know. We'll see. Did you ever watch the show read the book Mommy, Dead, and Dearest? it's like back there in my brain I don't know if I did or I just know of this book which is where the and I don't remember if it's a book or if it's like a tv show that I watched but it's where the mom basically convinces herself and her daughter that she's that she has this disease that she doesn't have and then they end up like killing the mom um oh I mean it's a pretty common story but Jensen is kind of like that in where her mom is like forcing her to be a child actor and that's like the premise of it yeah okay I don't know let me know how it is you and Jen are both reading it literally right now so I'm excited to hear the two different perspectives Oh, perfect. So Jen and I have my um, dream day date today where we went to a bookstore and then went to a coffee shop and sat silently next to each other while reading books. <laughs> I love, love it. it. I could not pick a book to read. I bought Lessons in Chemistry because that's the next book that we're reading. And then I was like, I don't know what other book I need to buy. And the answer is none because I have a very large like TBR pile that's just waiting for me to read it. But, you know, you can't leave a bookstore without a new book. So she picked out one for me to read. She's like, I think you'll like this. And it's definitely a YA novel now that I'm reading it, maybe. But it's about two teenagers, uh, Lark and Kassam. It's called Lark and Kassam Start a, Re- a Revolution. I think I accidentally read more YA novels than like the average person. I pick something up and then 30 <laughs> pages and I'm like, damn it, this is for a teenager. <laughs> but then I'm like committed. I'm like, whatever, I'll read it. It's fine. So Lark and Kassam Start a Revolution is by Case and Calendar, who is a non-binary writer and the main story in or the main character in this book Lark is also a non-binary person. Kasim is also trans. Their friends are like a very diverse group of teenagers who all want to be writers, which I think is kind of funny. Um it all also is based on this series of tweets that somebody accidentally posts on Lark's account. Lark has like 30,000 followers or something. And then after this series of tweets, they're following blossoms they might actually be able to realize their dream of becoming an author but obviously these tweets are about their unrequited love so it's a lot of teenage drama but honestly it's pretty cute so far and I love how kind of just back burner the fact that they're all kind of figuring out their gender that they are you know at different points kind of in that journey it's not important to the story the story is really like who's lying to who and who likes who and why is that person cuddling with that person like it's very teenage drama and it really normalizes those parts of themselves that seem very revolutionary or radical and are not at all. They're just humans and they're just dealing with the same shit the rest of us are. But I, it's cute so far. Okay. So if you have any teens in your life, fuck you, Erica. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. But also anyone reading at a 10th grade level would enjoy this book. (laughs) I am almost like halfway done. (laughs) But I would say that it is interesting because the story focuses just on this like teenage drama that it's also us kind of a softball launch into like talking about gender and about 
what being non-binary is. So if somebody in your life is also like pretty confused on what that means. There's a lot of like meditating on what that means to our main characters from a teenager point of view. So it's pretty easy to understand. So I do think that there is something to be said for that as well. Nice. Nice. I also, (laughs) I also read Midnight Library, which I loved. I had picked this up one time before and read the first couple of chapters. And I do think it's a little bit of a slow start that you need really to appreciate the rest of the book. But the first time I picked it up, I was like, this is not for me. And this time I picked it up and I really connected with it. And there's something to be said about a book finding you when you need it. But it's about Nora, this girl who is attempting to commit suicide in the very beginning of the book. That's like the premise of it and ends up in this library kind of between life and death and gets to explore and see all the possibilities with the potential turns, which are infinite, that her life could have taken. And I think one of the main things I was thinking about the entire time is like we can pick our decisions, but we can't control the outcomes of those decisions. We just get to make them and then hope for the best. So I thought it was a really beautiful book. It's short. It's an easy read. It is kind of a big questions about life kind of read if you want to get into it. Okay. I think I'm intrigued. You read it. I'm intrigued. Okay. I'll see if they have it at the library. Okay. Love it. Great. I am also reading the second book in the Beartown series by Frederick Backman. So I read Beartown, and this one is called, I think, Us Against You. I saw the third book, third and last book in the series today at the bookstore. It's 700 pages. Why? Why? Called The Winners. So I'm halfway through the second book right now. It's still really good. I think the way that these books are written is beautiful and emotional, and I love it. I'm also stressed about what the climax is going to be in this. Like, what is going to happen? What other traumas can this little town endure? I'm just not sure. I also heard that this series is becoming an HBO series. So that's love exciting. It. I, I love nothing more than finishing a good book and realizing it's being made into a show or a movie. I'm like, oh, perfect. Cannot wait to relive this whole thing. Yes. I'm like, keep this experience going. I'm here for it. I actually did the reverse of this. So sometimes if I find out a show or a movie is being made about a book, I will get the book first and read it. So I did that with Bones and All because that's a movie with Timothy Chalamet that's coming out or maybe it has come out. But a funny thing that happened is I also saw this show on Hulu, Tell Me Lies, based on this like really popular book. And I said, oh, I know that cover. I should read this book. And then I got it. And I'm literally, as I'm reading it, having deja vu. And I literally got like 50 pages in before I was like, I've read this book before. I fully read it. I've, I've definitely read this book. I, hate I was like, oh, let me guess. Her boss is going to fire her because she posted a blog about another hotel. I'm like, how do I know that? That's so specific. I really was like, did that happen in another book? Oh, no. Did you finish it or you just stopped it at 50 pages? No, I just stopped because I was like, I've definitely read this book. It clearly didn't leave that much of an impression, but I'm just going to watch the Hulu show and it's fine. Okay. So would not recommend to read the book. I don't remember the book, to be honest. I don't remember, but I am just going to watch the Hulu show. The other um, popular show right now on Netflix based on a memoir is called from scratch. It's super popular on TikTok, and I am waiting for the show to get good. It's a little too, I don't know. It's sort of like romantic, a little bit of a dramedy kind of thing that's going on. 
not that into the show, but people people are obsessed with this show on TikTok. What's the memoir? Whose memoir? It's called From Scratch. Sorry, this woman's memoir. I don't know. I hate reading random people's memoirs, but who do you think that you are to write a memoir? I mean, she has a she has a very romantic. So she's an artist. She goes to Italy. She falls in love with an Italian man. Mm. He eventually moves to the U.S. to try and make it with her. So she's a struggling artist. He wants to be a chef. He wants to own a restaurant. So it's like their love story and then their complicated family drama and they're trying to make it work. All right, fine. I mean, Ugh. anyone's hey, life I'm gonna story re- is interesting. I'm going to remember that when you write your memoir, Katie. <laughs> I will never write a memoir. I'm not a famous or interesting person. <laughs> oh, I beg to differ, Katie. I beg to differ. I was thinking today, though, reading this book about these kids who want to be writers, like, maybe I do want to write a novel, though. Ooh, okay, great. Ooh, okay. All right. All right, bye. This was lovely. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, I wasn't saying bye. I was like, See did you, you read anything else? Do you have anything else to say? No, I have nothing else to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm done. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week.